Thank you very much. Thank you, Pastor Brad. Um, turn in your Bibles, please, to uh, the book of Galatians. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 2 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We will get you one. Um, who's handing out Bibles today? Good. There we go. Keep your hand up, and we will get you a Bible. I am a dentist. I practice dentistry in Reno. I drill Phil and Bill, and, it is, and it's a thrill. My wife used to be a manicurist, but she had to quit because we fought tooth and nail. So, um, so we're, uh, we are doing much better now. Just want to welcome everybody to uh, worship service at Sierra Bible Church. Glad you're here. Um, as we said before, the ladies, uh, a lot of them, not all of them, obviously, but about 40 of them are at a women's retreat, and they're coming home today. And uh, that's just a totally different dynamic whenever mom's away, right? Like the little girl who answered the phone and, and said, no, mommy's not here. Me and daddy and Johnny and the twins are home all alone. <laughs> and so uh, a lot of men are looking forward to their wives coming home. And Pastor uh, Jesse was a little overwhelmed with the situation, so he asked me to preach this morning, and I'm very thankful that he did. <clears throat> we have a lot of um, Bible studies going on. We have uh, the book of Romans uh, being taught by Ali Richardson and the book of Genesis being taught by um, Lisa? Laura, Laura, and um, men's Bible study going on every other Saturday. Pastor Wayne is leading that through uh, our book, his book that he wrote um, called The One and Others in Scripture. So if you don't have that yet and you want to come be a part of that uh, Bible study, talk to Pastor Wayne and he'll get you a book, who I believe is gone today, so scratch that. Um, let's look at our Bibles this morning in the book of Galatians. There was a uh, man and woman who had committed their lives to uh, serving the Lord, and they had sent their daughter to the mission field. She'd been gone for three years. She was in the deep recesses of Africa, uh, a third world country, and she was coming home. And she had written to her parents a couple months earlier that she was going to be bringing home a special someone. That special someone was her fiancé. And so they were uh, excited to meet the man who was going to be her future husband and their future son-in-law. So they got to the airport, and they were walking down the corridors, and they came to the place where there were hundreds of people just walking around and going to their various gates and whatnot. And as he looked down the hallway, he saw a man that looked rather unusual. He was a tall man, well-built, um, dark, handsome. Um, he had a long, flowing robe that was many, uh, just multicolored. He had kind of a staff in his hand. He was kind of dancing around. It sounded like maybe he was even chanting a little bit. He had uh, a long golden neck around, uh, golden chain around his neck, and he had animal bone piercings through his nose and, and, uh, and piercings in his ears and, and just a lot of strange things. And then to his horror, he, walked, he saw that the man was walking hand in hand with his daughter. And he, and he, and, and it, and he realized what was going on. This was the man that he was going, she was going to marry. This was going to be his future son-in-law. So he, they got closer and his eyes met hers and he said, No, darling, no. We said we wanted you to marry a rich doctor. Okay, so sometimes we need to be uh, kind of exact with our um, communication with one another, right? So we are in the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is a tremendously important book. Um, we've already had a number of uh, introductory and um, wonderful messages that have been preached from this book. A little bit of background, Paul and Barnabas have been, has, um, the Holy Spirit has set aside Paul and Barnabas to go on this first missionary journey. They left Pisidian Antioch, they came south, then they went back up north into a province called Galatia. And this uh, province had cities like Lystra, Iconium, Derbe, and two men got saved, uh, a lot of people, a lot of, lot of uh, Gentile um, people got saved, 
and uh, they came to know Christ by grace through faith in his uh, finished work on the cross. And uh, one of those men was Timothy that um, became one of Paul's uh, protégés. He eventually pastored the church at Ephesus. And another was a man by the name of Titus, and he's going to be the pastor of Crete. And to those two men, we're going to have our pastoral epistles written. But the author of Galatians is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to these Galatian believers who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But as soon as Paul left, on his heels came these Judaizers. They were Jews that apparently looked like they were saved, but they said that in order to be saved now, you Gentiles, that's good that you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now you need to be circumcised and submit yourself to the law of Moses. And so the question now is, um, is that necessary? And so that was the, uh, the, the whole question. And if we, if we hold our finger there in Galatians and look back in Acts chapter 15, I believe that this council at Jerusalem that we have in um, Acts chapter 15 is the same situation. Not everybody agrees on this, but it appears to me that it's the same situation that we have in Galatians chapter 2. And if we take a look at chapter 15, verse 1, Luke writes, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this has been true throughout church history, that people want to add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. We call them cults. There are three um, characteristics of a cult. One is that Jesus Christ is not fully God, that he's a created being, and, that, uh, and therefore, secondly, that his work on the cross is not sufficient for your salvation. You have to add something to it. And then the third thing that they have is always some um, individual who has received some uh, special divine revelation, and now everybody is going to kind of follow him. But the key is, is that many people throughout the years have wanted to add something to our Christian faith. And oftentimes that's true even in our own lives. And with the Apostle Paul and the believers at Galatia, it was true also. Look at verse 5 of Acts chapter 15. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Well, Paul writes this letter because the Galatians appear to be very strongly influenced by this. They're moving in that direction. They're saying, okay, we're saved by grace through faith. We, we want something. We want some document, some, some legalistic document to tell us now how to begin to live our lives and how to be pleasing to God. So, um, but it's not law. That's not the direction that we're going to go. And Paul helps them to understand that. The theme. Every book of the Bible has a particular theme. The theme here with Galatians is Christian liberty. The Christian has been set free from the penalty of sin, but then also from the power of sin. It no longer holds dominion over us. Now, oftentimes it does because we need to learn the truths of, um, of what it is that Jesus Christ has done for us to really experience this liberty. But that's where Paul is going. He's teaching us what is Christian liberty and how do we go about obtaining it. And so the occasion of the letter then is an attack on the Apostle Paul. If you want to discredit somebody's message, you discredit the messenger, right? Um, and so there's three attacks on Paul, the man himself, the man, the ministry, and the message. The man, he's not one of the original apostles. He's not, you don't deserve to listen to him because he's not one of the original 12. He didn't eat and drink and walk and talk with Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. So these, that Paul is sort of a Johnny-come-lately. He's, sort of he's sort of somebody that has just been squeezed in, and he's really not worthy to be listened to. Secondly, his ministry is that he's not called to be an apostle directly by Jesus Christ. And Paul said, yes, I was. So nanny, nanny. And then thirdly, his message was not being true to Judaism. 
um, this was a problem in the early church. Because one thing that was interesting is that there weren't a lot of Gentiles in the early church. The early church was predominantly, exclusively for a while, uh, Jewish. And so it was very rare to see a Gentile walking into a church. But now God is pouring out his spirit. And through Paul and Barnabas, many, many Gentiles are getting saved. And so the question is, how do we go about ministering to them? The key word in the epistle is freedom. Freedom. What is freedom and what do we mean by that? It's freedom from the penalty of sin. It's freedom from the power of sin. It's freedom from the dominion of sin. It's this freedom that God has given us to walk in newness of life. And so the key verse in this epistle is going to be Galatians 2.20, which uh, Pastor Jesse will get to next week. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So what Paul is saying here now is that it's no longer Paul who lives, but it's Christ that's living in him, empowering him, strengthening him. And we come to Galatians 5 with the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and we would say, well, the purpose of the Holy Spirit now is to conform us to the image of Christ, to conform us to his character. What does that character look like? It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is a composite picture of the character and the nature of Jesus Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's where God wants, um, wants our lives to go. That's the character that he wants to develop. As a matter of fact, I think that that is the number one most important thing that God is doing in your life and in mine. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ is so wonderful, so glorious, so beautiful, so majestic that God took a look at him and said, I want a whole bunch more just like him. And that's the goal of the gospel now, is to bring us all into conformity to the character and the nature of Jesus Christ. And guess what? What's going to thwart that? Nothing. Paul said, I'm confident of the very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, for some of us, we've got a little bit further to go than for others. <laughs> but we're all on that journey. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Every single one of us in this room has a destiny that God has implanted on your life, and that is to be like his son. And we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. Okay, enough of that. What a glorious truth. Can I get an amen? amen. Okay, good. Don't shout me down. That's what, uh, sometimes that's what preachers say. Don't shout me down. Give me an amen. Okay, so here's the, here's the outline of the gospel, of, of, of the epistle of Galatia, Galatians. Number one in chapters one and two, very simple. And as Christians, every one of us need to have this down pat. And that's number one. The first two chapters are autobiographical. Paul is talking about the fact that his ministry and his message come directly from whom? From Jesus Christ. Who did Paul meet on the road to Damascus? Who was his personal teacher at seminary for three years in Arabia? Jesus Christ. So saying, you know what? Um, the apostles had Jesus all to them. No, they had to share Jesus with 12 guys, not Paul. He had them all by himself. And guess what? So do you. Every time you wake up in the morning and you get yourself a uh, cup of some addictive substance, for the first time I walked into my study this morning and I share a quiet time with a little mouse that just about gave me a heart attack this morning. So we are getting a cat. That's our next goal in our family. And, um, but you, 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 you sit down. You put your gluteus maximus to the chair and you open up the word of God and you say, God, you be my teacher. You communicate to me truth. You help me understand who you are and what your word is all about. 
because it's the word of God that changes and transforms our lives and gives us a security and the ability to, to live the Christian life. And so the second thing that Paul um, goes on to say here is in chapters 3 and 4 is that salvation is by grace through faith. Plus what? Nothing. <laughs> That's all you need? Just put your faith in Jesus Christ? Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. What did he do? What could he do? He couldn't do anything. All he could do was say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Salvation is by grace through faith in the Savior. That's chapters 3 and 4. It was true with Abraham. It was true with David. It's true with every saint of God going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God saves everybody the same way. You see, when, we, when you and I are in heaven, we're not going to sit around going, hey, how'd you get in? Oh, man, I gave so much money to great causes and to the church, and I uh, took the pastor out to lunch once a week, and I prayed, and I led Bible studies, and I led a whole bunch of people to the Lord. No, every single one of us is going to get into heaven the same way, and that's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the sovereign Lord, the sovereign ruler, and there is no other name by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, sweetest name I know. Fills my heart with longing, keeps me singing as I go. How about you? Amen? It's good stuff. Okay, this is more fun than a good time, isn't it? Okay, so the second, third thing is in uh, Galatians 5 and 6 is sanctification. What do we mean by sanctification? We mean that process by which we are made more and more holy, where the word of God begins to take root in every aspect of our heart and life, and it affects our personal walk, it affects our marriage, it affects our parenting, it affects our business, it affects our church, it affects our ministry. The word of God begins to take hold and take root and becomes the very foundation of everything that we say and everything that we do. It is the final um, authority for faith. That's orthodoxy that we might think correctly. And it's the final authority for orthopraxy so that our practice would be correct. And the sanctification does not take place by putting ourselves under the law. That appeals to the flesh. You only have two choices in this process of sanctification. And, and here's the problem. That you would say, and many religious systems have said this over the years, if, if salvation is just simply by grace through faith, then what is going to be the motive for holiness? What's going to be the motive for pursuing God and living a life that's pleasing to Him? It's grace. It's the power of the Holy Spirit living and abiding within us that motivates us and drives us on to be holy, to be more and more like Jesus. We have an internal guidance system now. We have a, we have a GPS system within us that says, here is the way, walk ye in it. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. And it's because Jesus Christ himself is the way and the truth and the life. Amen? And so once we begin to understand that and we begin to get all of this legalism stuff out of our lives and this rules and regulations, I mean, there are commandments that we need to follow. But his commandments are not burdensome. They're a joy to the child of God who delights in the person of Jesus Christ. It's like, wow, God, you've done all this for me. What, 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 what would you like me to do now? And remember that the Christian life is not difficult. It's really not. It's impossible. When you, <laughs> when you get saved and you open up this book, and you start seeing God's requirements for your life and for mine, in your own strength, that's absolutely impossible. For me to love you like Christ loved, loves us, for you to love me like Christ loves us, 
Those are, there are commandments that there's no way that you can keep them, and that's exactly what God de- desires. Because if you could keep them all in your own strength, he could just pat you on the back and say, way to go, good job, boy, keep it up. No, we come to God in humility and contrition of spirit, and we tremble at God's word, and we say, Father, I can't put this into practice apart from your grace, your power, your spirit filling me and conforming me to the image of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is personal, infinite, and eternal. How are you in your own strength going to conform to his image? On your own. But once you understand that and you begin to yield and give yourself over fully to God, and it simply comes from hours of meditation and study and digging into the Word of God, then we begin to discover the infinite possibilities that open up before us as God's conforming us to the image of His Son and His character is being developed in our lives. Isn't that a phenomenal thing? I mean, what other religious system can do that? And it's not that we're, all going to be look, that we're all going to look the same. We all have individual personalities and every single one of us is going to manifest the glory of God in a, unique, in a very unique way. Every one of us is different. Every one of us is unique. Every one of us has the stamp of human personality stamped upon us and as God begins to deal with us and work with us, as opposed to every other religious system where every single person just looks exactly the same. No, there is freedom in Christ, freedom to be who God's called you to be, freedom to enjoy God and enjoy who he has made you. And so um, that's what the book of Galatians is all about. That's what the gospel is all about. But one of the things that's challenging here now as we transport ourselves back a couple hundred years into what Paul and the apostles were dealing with is that they were moving away from something to something. And there were things that you and I pretty much... um, well, they were moving, this is what the, what one of the challenge of the Gospels, is that they were moving away from law, and how long was the nation of Israel under law? 1,500 years. When you're under something for 1,500 years, and all of a sudden everybody says, well, wait a minute, now it's grace, which they should have known. I mean, how many pictures in the Old Testament are there of the person of Jesus Christ? You can't miss them. I mean, the whole Old Testament is like this beautiful museum of room after room after room, of walking in and seeing Jesus Christ hair and seeing Jesus Christ there through the sacrifices and through the feasts and through the, through the priesthood and through the temple and through the promises of God and all of these things. I mean, here's Jesus Christ and then he presents himself to the nation of Israel and they, and they miss him. But, but here's the, 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 the transition as they're going from law to grace, from Judaism to Christianity and from the temple to Jesus Christ. And so these things are sort of a challenge for them. For us, we're on this side of the cross. These things kind of seem pretty simple to us. We're on this side of the Reformation, right? We know all of the solas, the sola scriptura, gratia, fide, Christus, deo, gloria. Isn't that wonderful? Let's all repeat after me, you know. Uh, But see, these are just truths that we sort of take for granted, like the man whose wife made him a marble cake and he took it for granted. See, um, you don't, (laughs) we don't really want to do that. Um, but sometimes that happens. And so if we transport ourselves back, we're going to see that it was a difficult transition. And here's what I want, here's, here's sort of the, the take home. The Apostle Paul stands alone as the one minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ who clearly understands the priority and the preeminence of grace. The Apostle Paul has been called the Apostle of Grace. And so to say that this transition was easy is, is making a mistake. Because even the, even the apostles, and I'll show you why this is true, 
Even the apostles of Jerusalem are having a difficult time with this. <laughs> so let me repeat that. What's more, the Apostle Paul stands alone as the one minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ who clearly understands the priority and the preeminence of grace. But somebody texted me this week and said, please pray that I would understand grace. You know what? That's a lifelong process. And the only way that we can really fully comprehend grace is to fully comprehend the life and the person of Jesus Christ. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so as we watch Jesus Christ and the way that he interacts, the way that he teaches, the way that he speaks to people, the way that he, he, he ministers to them, what do we find? We find a perfect balance of grace and truth. So that's the introduction. No extra charge for that. Let's start the message. Everybody please stand. <laughs> We're going to read. Um, seriously, everybody stand. <laughs> Everybody stand, and we're going to read. We're going <laughs> to... Uh, it's just like there was this student who uh, was giving a speech on how to skip class. And into his speech, a little while, the, the professor said, hey, do you have any props to show us what you mean? He said, sure. I almost forgot, but I sure do. Ran out into the hallway, and he never came back. <laughs> okay. I don't know what that has to do with anything. But let's pick it up at uh, Galatians 1.18. Paul says... That Paul's given his alibi here. He's given, his, uh, he's given everything that he's been doing. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the disciples who were in the area, who were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the gospel that he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up. And I submitted to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did it in secret to those who were of reputation for fear that I had run or was running in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of reputation, those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God knows, shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contribute nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his ministry to the circumcised also effectively worked for me in my apostleship to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. Father, we praise you and thank you so much for your word. What a joy it is to know that you have spoken to us and communicated to us in your Son and in your Word. Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would enlighten us, open up our eyes and our hearts, Father, so that we might comprehend more fully who you are and what it is that you've called us to do. We ask it, Father, and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me be seated, please. Okay, so in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, Then after an interval of 14 years, what has Paul been doing for 14 years? 
Well, first he went to Jerusalem, and then he went to his hometown of Tarsus. And then in Antioch, there was a great revival, and a man by the name of Barnabas was there. And so Barnabas goes and finds Saul, brings him to Antioch, and they teach a number of disciples for over a year. Then there's ministry that Paul does, and then uh, he ends up back in um, Antioch. He's there. And then the Holy Spirit says, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called them to do. And that was the first missionary journey. And the exciting thing is, is that Paul is going into Gentile lands. We just read that Peter was the apostle to the circumcised, that's to the Jew, right? Just like James and Peter, their, their epistles are a little bit more, have a little bit more of a Jewish flavor. Paul is, is ministering to the Galatians, ministering to the Gentiles. And that's why we have books in our Bible called Romans and Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossae and Thessalonians because these are all Gentile cities, Gentile towns where Paul went in and preached the gospel. But the interesting thing is, the important thing is, is that Gentiles are getting saved without converting to Judaism. How was, an old, how was a Gentile in the Old Testament saved? By Gentile, I mean anybody who's not a Jew, right? You have Jew and you have Gentile. Ever since the call of Abraham, isn't that the most beautiful ch- um, grandchild you've ever seen over there? <laughs> With the most beautiful daughter and the most handsomest son-in-law. Um, um, where were we? Um, yeah, they had to become Jews. Thank you. And so um, Ruth, Rahab, the people that Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 4. And in order for a person to be saved, they became um, God-fears, and then eventually they became full-fledged proselytes, and that's how they were saved. And so for 1,500 years, that's been the scoop. That's been the story. But now the Gentiles are getting saved, and they're not converting to Judaism. And so the question is, do they need to be? Well, Paul says, um, and and it's interesting because why are Barnabas and and Titus with him? Well, Barnabas was um, with Paul on that missionary journey, and so they understand who Barnabas is. And Titus was a man who probably got saved from Paul's uh, ministry there in in Galatia. So he's there with him, but more importantly, Titus is a test case. He's bringing Titus along, and he says, here's a Gentile. He hasn't been circumcised. He's not a son of the law, and guess what? He's saved. He's a born-again believer. He's a child of God. And so that's what's going to be, um, that's, what, that's what Titus, how Titus is going to be used. <laughs> that's kind of an interesting thought. Yeah, here I am, and I'm saved, and I'm born again, and I'm not circumcised, and I'm not going down that road either. I don't have to. But now look at verse 2. He says, it was because of a revelation that I went up. What Paul is saying here is that um, it wasn't the, the apostles at Jerusalem that have called him to Jerusalem and, and called him on the mat to give an account of his gospel. Paul said, it was Jesus Christ himself who brought me to Jerusalem and I submitted to, the go- to them the gospel which I preach, present tense, the gospel which I'm preaching now. This is the gospel when I preached the moment that I got saved. This is the gospel that I preached when I went into Jerusalem. This is the gospel that I preached when I went into Galatia. This is the process, the, the, the gospel that I preach now. It hasn't changed. And guess what, child of God? That message has not changed in 2,000 years. You see, you and I are not looking for a new message that's more palatable to a culture who hates God and who rejects him. Um, that, that the preaching of the cross has always been foolishness to the unbeliever, but to us who are being saved, it is what? It's the power of God. Um, Paul said when he went to Corinth, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. But when you got saved, I wanted it to be good 
be because of the power of God and the Spirit of God that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. We don't need a new message. What we need is the power to proclaim the message that we have received. The message that we are, Jesus Christ calls us witnesses. Witnesses simply take a message that's been granted to them and they proclaim it, right? And Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. After the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, and under the remotest parts of the earth. We're witnesses. We're not philosophers. We're not scientists. We're not debaters. We're not the great intellectuals of the world. We're not the Pi Beta Kappas of the world. So we all sit around and say, is this message good enough or should we kind of modify it a little bit? Um, what we need is the filling of the Holy Spirit and the moral courage to take our stand with Jesus Christ and proclaim that message that is the only message that we have, it's the only message that we need, it's the only message that the world can receive by which they will be saved. And so what do we preach? We preach the virgin birth, the virtuous life, the vicarious death, the victorious resurrection, and the visible return, right? That Jesus Christ is coming back. He's coming again. Amen? And he's going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to establish his kingdom. And he's going to assign the unbelievers to hell. And he's going to assign those who have believed and trusted to him to where? Heaven. You believe that? Ah, me too. Heaven is a wonderful place, right? Filled with glory and grace. I want to see my Savior's face. Heaven is a wonderful place. Everybody. No, just kidding. Ah, in dental school, they called me Disco Dave. So I, I, I move in that direction sometimes. Ah. What we don't do is put our finger in the wind and try to discern the direction of the prevailing culture and then trim our sails to fall in line with what it is that they're doing. Because the world has always been antagonistic to God. The world has always been in opposition to God. There is, there, there is, no, there is no fellowship between light and darkness. We have a message. Somebody once said, um, how do I witness to Catholics? Try the gospel. How do I witness to the Muslims? Try the gospel. This, this, is only, this is all we have. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I received that which I also delivered to you, that Jesus Christ died, that's an historical fact, for our sins, that's the theological truth, that he was dead, buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel, and that's all we need. Charles Spurgeon was one time asked, what is the secret to the power of your ministry? And he said, I explain the passage, and then I make a beeline for the cross. That's where the power is, right? But to us who are being saved, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Don't ever shy away from that message. Um, we have a God who has uh, demonstrated his love and his glory by putting his son on a cross, and we don't need to improve on that. We just need the power to fall in line and proclaim it boldly. Now in verse 3, um, he says, but not even tight. Okay, so let's uh, take a look at something else here. I did so in private to those who are of reputation. This is an interesting statement. He keeps saying four times those who are of reputation, those who are of high reputation, those who are of reputation, those who are of reputation. Is that four times? Roughly. There's three kinds of people in this world, those who can count and those who can't. But I think that, um, that this, this appears to be some veiled way of referring to these guys. He's talking, we're going to see in a minute, about Peter, James, and John, or James, Peter, and John. The, the, the order is very important. But, but, um, but he's saying this sort of in a veiled way, and we want, to find out, we want to find out why. But he says, For fear that I might be running or had run in vain, and what he's not saying 
is that I'm afraid that maybe my gospel needs to be tweaked a little bit. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, I hope that my gospel has fallen in line with these guys. What he's saying is, because if Jesus Christ appears to you on the road to Damascus and he communicates to you your sin, that you need to believe in him in order to be saved, and then he spends three years with you in Arabia communicating the truth of that gospel, you can be pretty sure that you got it right, right? Jesus Christ is a master teacher. He's a master communicator, and he had the ability to, to communicate truth. But Paul is saying, if anybody starts to add law, if anybody starts to add circumcision, if anybody starts to add these things to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're toast. My message is going to have to change, or not his message, but, but the people to whom he's ministered to are going to say, Paul, what in the world have you been talking about? You have been saying for months and years that we don't need this law, and now all of a sudden we do? No, no, no. No, then all of a sudden um, their sanctification is up to them, not up to, Je- not up to the Spirit of God. And so in verse 3, he says, But not even Titus, who was with me, who was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. It appears that these Judaizers, and I think even some of the uh, apostles up in Jerusalem, are putting a little bit of pressure on Titus to just go ahead and, you know, and, and, and just be circumcised. And Titus said, Not going there. He is a Gentile. He knows what has happened to him. He knows that he is a changed man. Remember the day that you trusted Christ as your personal Savior and believed on him? You knew something different had happened. You knew that God was now your heavenly Father. You knew that your sins are forgiven. You knew that heaven was your eternal home. You didn't understand anything else. In fact, that's all you needed to understand, that you're a sinner, that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of your, your sin. He was dead, buried, he rose again, and now he's coming into your, has come into your heart and into your life to save you, and he's caused you to be born again, and now you are a child of God. Amen? And so there's nothing that, that needs to change. There's nothing that needs to be added to that. And so Paul would have said, okay, Timothy or Titus, share your testimony. And he would have said, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to thee. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. And so now they're asking him to put himself under the bondage of the law? And you know what's amazing to me is that Titus has only been saved for about five or ten minutes, maybe give or take a few months. And nobody has to tell Titus, all he's been doing is listening to the gospel. You see, there are some people that get saved and all of a sudden they're just on fire. You don't need to light a fire under them. They're They're just ready to say, God, show me what it is that you want me to do. How can I follow closely to my Savior? How can I get into your word and be transformed by the renewing of my mind? Paul didn't need to say, come on, guys, have a quiet time. Come on, do the, get, get involved in prayer. Get involved in ministry. Now, I need to be encouraged to do those things all the time. Not really, but I do have a um, tendency sometimes to get a little slack, right? The thing is, though, is that when you understand who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us, all of a sudden our lives change. And Paul had this wonderful ability to discern and recognize who would be faithful in the ministry. And he took them under his wing and he began to disciple them. And these men became men who helped turn the world upside down. Where are you? Um, Husbands or your wives dragging you to church? (laughs) You're to be the spiritual leader. You're to be taking your wife and family to church. Um, People trying to encourage you and get you into the Bible and get you to read the Bible. That's great. Listen to them. Do it. Get into the Bible. Get yourself an addictive substance. Get yourself a quiet place. Turn on the light plus nothing and just zero in. 
I was studying something uh, here recently about writing papers and doing research. When you're zeroed in and focused on study, and then you get distracted, how long do you think it takes to get back into that state of focus where you're really able to concentrate on what you're doing? So you read a text, you check your email, there's a knock at the door, whatever. It takes, studies show that it takes 25 minutes to get back into a state of focus, which is why most of us have a hard time focusing because we have so many different distractions. I mean, if you have a distraction every 24 minutes, you're never able to focus. <clears throat> so set those things aside and focus on Jesus Christ and understand uh, more and more who he is and what he's done for us. Let's look at verse 4. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ. These are military terms. Um, these guys were subversives. They were putting on a covert o operation was underway to take these guys prisoners, um, thinking that they were leading these men into freedom, but they were actually leading them into bondage. And all of us are in bondage to some sort of system or some, uh, we are for sure in bondage to sin prior to salvation. And now Jesus Christ is at work to free us from that. Remember Jesus said, whosoever abides in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now as you begin to walk with the Lord in the light of his word, you begin to see areas in your life that need to change and need to be transformed. Paul understood that and he said, Wretched man that I am. And notice what he says next. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Not what? Not the law, not rules, not regulations, but who will set me free from the body of this death? And then here's the cry of victory. Here's the cry of celebration. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? It is he, Jesus Christ, who is the one who sets us free. Only God can do that. At the cross, he paid the penalty for sin. That's our past tense salvation. Now he is, he is delivering us from the power of sin. That is our present tense salvation. Someday, he's going to deliver us from the very presence of sin. That's our future tense salvation. But right now, we struggle. Right now, we fight the good fight of faith. We finish the course. We keep the faith. But there is no freedom in legalism. There's only bondage. Legalism leads to frustration. It leads to a critical and a complaining spirit. It's just, it's just no fun, right? That's how Chuck Swindoll defined legalism. He said, legalism is the awful fear that somebody somewhere is having fun. <laughs> That's how he defined it. I think that Christians, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, children of God, should enjoy life more than anybody else on the planet. We should be filled with love, joy, peace, all of these things that are so good to our hearts and lives. We say goodbye to discouragement and doubt. Those are things that we need to deal with, but those things don't come from God. By the way, where does pride, discouragement, doubt, bitterness, lying, pride, and uh, an independent spirit? Those are all attacks from Satan. Those do not come from God. And when you experience those, you put on the armor of God. And that was a message from a few years ago that just Pastor Jesse preached wonderfully in Ephesians. Now look at verse 5. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour. Um, this whole section here is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It's, it's pretty difficult in um, some, some areas to kind of figure out what's going on. Did it just get hot in here? <laughs> um, 
But we're going to take a look at something that is very fascinating. But look, look at what Paul says. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. You see, whenever you have hills that you will die on, the church is safe. This is what we look to for our leaders, right? These are the people who protect us from the wolves and take care of the sheep. When you have hills that you are willing to die on, um, that the church will be, will be safe. What are those hills? It's the inerrancy of, these are things that are under attack constantly in our world, constantly because of liberalism and humanism and all of these different things. The inerrancy of scripture, the deity of Christ, substitutionary atonement, salvation by grace through faith, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Christ to judge the living and the dead, establish his kingdom, a literal heaven and a literal hell. These are things, if we stand on these things, we'll be distinct. Not only we'll be different, right? I mean, the Christian is different, but we'll be better. Christians are not just to be different. We're to be better citizens, better Christians, better people, better, better church members, better husbands, better wives, better, all because of the grace and the word of God. But let me, I don't think that, um, remember the chapter where Paul got saved on the road to Damascus? What chapter in the book of Acts was that? Acts chapter 9, right? Well, I don't think that that was the first place that Paul heard the gospel. Turn over with me to Acts chapter 7. Um, when we get to heaven, the most glorious and most wonderful thing that we're going to see is Jesus Christ. And after um, we've, I've, I've worshipped him for a few thousand years, a few millennia, um, the next people that I want to get together with are uh, Luke, probably number one, I mean, his gospel is, is phenomenal. It's been called the most beautiful piece of literature ever written. And uh, I just like to sit down with Luke and tell him, I talk to him about his travelogues with the Apostle Paul. But the second person that I want to talk to is Stephen. Stephen is my hero in the Word of God. Um, if we take a look at Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, Stephen has been brought before the Sanhedrin because he's preaching against the temple and against the law. And he's saying that Jesus, these things are, are no longer necessary because Jesus Christ himself has fulfilled both. Um, he's the fulfillment of the law to everyone who comes to Christ. He's, he's the end of the law for all who believe. And then the temple, Jesus Christ is the meeting place between man and God, right? And so he has to give a defense because they're secretly calling in witnesses in verse 13 of chapter 6. This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. And his defense here is really the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what he says is that um, you don't need the temple. Jesus said those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we don't need the temple anymore. Remember, by the way, that God, and, and, and what, what, what uh, Stephen does is he just goes back and rehearses off the cuff, off the top of his head, the whole history of Israel. From Genesis all the way through the end of the book, all the way through the end of the Old Testament, um, presumably. Um, but, but he begins doing that. It reminds me of a song by uh, Jeff Mullins. And he was extolling the word of God. And he said, stories like that make a boy grow bold. Stories like that make a man walk straight. See, it's the Bible that transforms our lives and gives us the moral courage to take a stand for righteousness. And so Stephen is going to say, you know what? God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. He appeared to um, Joseph in Egypt. He appeared to um, Moses on the backside of the burning desert at the burning bush. We don't need this. Um, but look at verse 48 now of Acts chapter 7. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. 
Heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? Now he's going to go into verses 51 and 53, and he's going to talk about the law and how God's people have responded to the law over the centuries. And it's not a pretty sight. He does not mince any words. It is not a seeker-friendly. It's not a seeker-sensitive. It's not even a seeker-awareness message. But look at what he does. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. You see what he's saying? He's preaching the gospel. He's saying, here is the law. You couldn't keep it. What you desperately need is grace. You need a savior. You need to trust in somebody who has died to pay the penalty for your sin. Now watch what happens. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Immediately had to go see a dentist to get a night guard or, or a bunch of crowns. They just turned into animals and they're frothing at the mouth and they're ready to just kill this guy. And uh, yeah, so, so their teeth were, um, were a pro- became problematic. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Why did Jesus stand up at this moment? God said in Psalm 110 verse 1, Sit at my right hand until I make thy enemies a footstool for thy feet. Then Jesus Christ is going to say, Now get up and go get them. And he's going to come and get his bride. But for now, he's seated at the right hand of God. We call that the ascension and then the session of Christ. He's seated at the right hand of God because he's our priest and his work is finished. But here he stands up. Why? To welcome the first martyr into the Christian church. And he's clapping. He's, 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 he's celebrating. He's saying, good job, Stephen. Way to go. And, and, he, and the heavens are open and he sees this. Now, Stephen is not the first Christian, um, first believer of the Christian church to die. That was Ananias and Sapphira. But when you lie to the Holy Spirit and you deceive the apostles into believing something that's not true, you don't get a ticket tape parade on your entrance into heaven. They sneak you in the back door. But here... Stephen is a faithful witness and the first martyr of the Christian church and Jesus Christ stands up. As Paul said, uh, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. comes from right here. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit and his praise is not from men, but from God. As a child of God, you are not seeking the praise of men. You're not seeking the praise of the world. You are seeking the praise of of God. And here Stephen has it. But the way they cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears, and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so in this way, Luke introduces Saul into the story, which is phenomenal. It's it's wonderful because it just shows how much of a transition and transformation took place in the life of the Apostle Paul. But here's Saul, and I think as Stephen has given his testimony, he sees Saul out of the corner of his eye, but he keeps testifying, and he knows what's coming. He knows his life is over. He knows he's going to um, suffer martyrdom for the cause of Christ. But he does it anyway because he knows what the result is going to be. Jesus Christ is going to welcome him into glory. And I think 
that this never leaves the mind and the heart of the Apostle Paul. This testimony, this gospel story, this martyrdom of Stephen, whenever Paul, I don't think Paul ever preaches a sermon or teaches a Sunday school class or writes an epistle, but that what he has heard and saw with Stephen and watched the way that he dies, um, it never leaves him. In Acts chapter 22, it says, And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And so this, as it begins now to be the very foundation that will, God will build in Saul's life. And they went on stoning Stephen as they called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. It's like a father holding, or, or a mother holding a very young child in his arms. And it's just um, gently soothing the child with soft words and soft, soft tender touches and just saying, be quiet, be still, be calm. You're in the ha- arms of your heavenly father. And so Saul sees that, and when it's his time to begin to stand faithful for the Lord Jesus Christ, he does it because he remembers this, this whole situation with Stephen. Now, if we look at verse 6, and we'll be done here in just a minute. Um, but from those who are of high reputation, there it is again, were of high, uh, it says what they were makes no difference to me. What they were, they were of high reputation. These are guys who followed Jesus Christ on planet earth. They were men of reputation. He says again, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. Verse 9, recognizing the grace that had been given to me, um, those who, who were reputed to be pillars, It's like a crescendo. He says, these guys are leaders, they're important, they're pillars in the church. And he says this so often that you start to get the feeling that maybe that's not what Paul means at all. If you read uh, Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare at the eulogy of Julius Caesar, uh, Mark Antony is given a eulogy and he keeps referring to Brutus as an honorable man. He's honorable, he's honorable, he's honorable. And finally, you, you discover that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying... For all, he should have been an honorable man, but for all his actions and words, he's very dishonorable. And Paul is walking a tightrope here because these men are important. They are of reputation. They are ones who have walked with the Lord. They are ones that are doing the work of the ministry. But what Paul says here is that in a time of crisis, they didn't step up and act like they should have. I think that they were kind of encouraging the way that Paul words these things. They were, they were sort of encouraging Titus or you know to to go ahead and just get um, circumcised or, or something along those lines. It says in verse 6 of chapter 15, the apostles and the, and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice. And so Paul went out. But Paul was the only one who was standing strong. Paul was the only one who was saying, this has got to be um, our stand. We've got to be united in this. And next week, as Pastor Jesse teaches, we're going to see Peter kind of failing in another area. He, he, he played the hypocrite in front of Jews and Gentiles that were eating together. And so that's just something to kind of think about. It, it reminds me that I need to pray for my leaders. I need to pray for those that God has put over me so that they'll be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, that there are hills that they'll be willing to die on, that they'll be willing to go forth and, uh, and, and uh, protect, protect the sheep, both uh, teaching sound doctrine and refuting those who contradict, as he, Paul says in Titus. And so <clears throat> he, he, he's going to go on now and says, um, 
who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. In other words, my gospel was complete. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel, and then verse 9, recognizing the grace that had been given to me. The grace that um, is manifest here is two things. In a church, these are the two things that we want to see um, that when we know that the grace of God is really empowering and manifesting itself in our lives. Number one, the great commission. And number two, the great commandment, right? The great commission is that we make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. And then the great commandment is that we love one another as Christ has loved us. And I see that in this church family. I see that God is working and manifesting his grace and people are getting saved and baptized and they want to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and want to be discipled and, and find areas in, in, uh, in, in the church to serve and other people to serve. And it's, a, and it's a real blessing to watch. And then Paul says, so they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Everything is okay. There's unity. There's, there's, one, there's single-mindedness. There's a, there's a single gospel, but, but it wasn't easy. Uh, it wasn't just they all get together and say, yeah, grace, grace by faith plus nothing is, a, is, is the way we're going to go. It took a lot of, it took a lot of uh, discussion and debate. Um, but we see that throughout church history. Early in his monastic career, Martin Luther, rummaging through the stacks of a library, happened upon a volume of sermons by John Huss. John Huss's name, name means goose, right? And they burned him at the stake. So when you hear your goose is cooked, that's where it comes from. He lived about 100 years before Martin Luther, and he was just communicating what John Wycliffe was communicating in England 100 years before that. So um, Martin Luther found the writings of John Huss. He says, I was overwhelmed with astonishment, Luther later wrote, and I could not understand for what cause they had burnt so great a man who explained the scriptures with such gravity and skill. But here's what John Hanna, who's professor of uh, uh, church history at Dallas Seminary, said. He said, Luther in his day said that God alone was authoritative, that his word alone was authoritative, and grace was not obtained by taking communion and through the sacraments, the sacred moments, but through faith in Christ. And the priesthood was meant to be servants, not to be the wealthy and the profiteers of the church. And that's exactly what John Huss was saying in Czechoslovakia 100 years before. The exact, um, uh, and, and, and he died before they could kill him, and so they went and exhumed his bones and burned those. And then John Huss, um, they um, killed him at the stake for saying these things in Czechoslovakia. But all of these men say the same thing prior to Martin Luther, and he said that they were all spitting in the wind. They were just spitting in the wind, and they were going against the tide. And that's what you and I must do, even if nothing comes of it. You stay faithful. Because you know what he said in Martin Luther's day? The wind changed. The message hadn't changed, but the wind changed. And God had allowed the people to stew in their own immorality and their own debauchery that finally they said, we need something new. In Huss's and Wycliffe's day, the culture had not fallen into enough depravity, but someday it would. And in your life, you may be speaking to people and you're just waiting for the winds to change. I'll never forget, after I became a Christian, just a few years old in the Lord, I was talking to my dad and to my uncle who is his brother 12 years his junior and I was sharing the gospel as I often did and uh, my uncle was just sitting there going yeah yeah this is cool this is all right and my dad was just violently opposed to it and he was finding every reason to disagree but I just kept and, and, my, and my uncle is still in that yeah that's nice stage but uh, for a while with my dad after sharing with him and praying with him over the years 
the wind changed. And he had some major issues and major problems. He went to see my pastor at the time, and my pastor said, shared the gospel with him. And he said, uh, would you like to pray right now and receive the Lord as your personal Savior? And he said, uh, yeah, but I'd like to do that with my son. <laughs> and so we had a dinner a number of days later, and I said, Dad, let's go talk. So I said, Dad, you know you're a sinner? Yeah, I acknowledge that. Dad, um, you know that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for your sin. He did something for you that you couldn't do for yourself, right? And he said, yep, I understand that. I said, you know that he died for your sin, that he rose again on the third day, that he's alive, and he can come into your life right now if you confess your sin and acknowledge him as your personal Savior and Lord. And he said, that's exactly what I'd like to do. So he prayed, and we prayed, and God has done a wonderful work in his life. I mean, you see someone who just has so much potential, but it's just dead. And now over the years, over the decades, my dad has just blossomed into this man who just loves God, loves his family, loves the Bible, and just can't get enough of uh, spiritual things. Calling me all the time, hey, what about this, what about that? Tell me, how do I get, um, how, how do I make sure somebody is saved? You know? and, uh, and he's really excited about that. So who, where, where are you spitting in the wind? Or where do you feel like you're spitting in the wind? <laughs> Keep spitting. Um, you just wait for the winds to change, right? The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Salvation is a sovereign act of God. Um, it's not something that you can do, but you can contribute to it by sharing your faith. But you just wait for the wind to change. You may be here this morning, and, um, and people have been talking to you about Jesus Christ, or you've heard the message of the gospel in this church a number of times, but you've never taken that step of faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. Maybe, the, maybe this morning is the time that the winds will change. Maybe you've seen um, by the Spirit of God how precious Jesus Christ really is. And that he is the one who's died to pay the penalty for your sin, that he was dead, buried, that he rose again the third day, and he can come into your life and be your Savior. Don't leave this building without letting that happen this morning. And if you're a Christian, remember that your Christian life depends upon your relationship to Jesus Christ by grace through faith, but then also the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that we're going to see in Galatians 5 and 6, who is the real one who overcomes the, the flesh. No man has ever been able to conquer the flesh. You can't do it. So it's good just to give up trying <laughs> because there's nothing more frustrating. But Paul said, um, if we walk by the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And that's where the book is going. Father, we praise you and thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the life and the joy that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that at a point in each of our lives, the wind changed. We may have been hearing the gospel for a number of uh, weeks, years, months, whatever, and then all of a sudden, Father, you impressed upon our heart your love for us, that we are sinners and that you sent your son to die for us. And Father, what a joy it was the day that we got saved, the day that we trusted Christ and welcomed him into our lives as our personal Savior and Lord. And Father, I pray for anybody that might be here this morning that has not yet done that, that they would, um, that they would say, today is the day. Maybe you're here this morning. Um, how, with our eyes closed, um, let's just let's see a show of hands. How many, how many people are here who know, um, who, who have had that experience, who just like Titus have said, um, you know, I've trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I know that I'm a child of God and that I'm born again and my sins are forgiven. I know that I'm on my way to heaven. Would you just lift your hand for me? If you know that that's the case, if you know that's the truth. 
Amen. You can put your hands back down. You might be here this morning and um, you weren't able to raise your hand just then. Um, You don't know for sure whether if you were to die tonight, you would go to be with the Lord. Um, you couldn't raise your hand because uh, you're not really, not really sure about this whole uh, gospel thing and uh, Jesus Christ dying for your sins. And Well, that's exactly what he did. And let me, let me just tell you that God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And that plan begins the moment that you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's bad news because the wages of sin is death. But the bad news is followed by the best news you could ever hear. And that's that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so maybe you're here this morning and you would like to, to do that and to know for sure that you are a child of God, that your sins are forgiven. You're, you're, you're saying, I trust and I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you just raise your hand? I know in, the, I know in this audience there's probably, most of us are probably saved, but I, good, I see those hands. And I, anybody else? <clears throat> anybody else? Well, thank you very much for doing that. And Father, I, I, I know, I, I, I pray for these that have trusted you and that have um, committed their lives to following your son. I pray that they would know the joy of forgiveness of sin and the joy of being part of the family of God. Let me just be the first to welcome you guys. Welcome to the family of God. Father, um, I pray that they would love your word, that they would fall more and more, more, and more in love with your son and that you would uh, just, can just begin to do that wonderful work in them and perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Father, we're so thankful for who you are. And as we continue to worship you, may Christ be exalted in our lives both today and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.